Welcome to Real Estate Coaching Radio, starring award-winning real estate coaches and number one international best-selling authors, Tim and Julie Harris. Real Estate Coaching Radio is the nation's number one daily radio show for realtors who demand authentic, real-time coaching. Get ready for fluff-free, unfiltered, full-strength honesty about what's truly working to get you into action, helping others, and making money now in today's real estate market. Now to our hosts, Tim and Julie Harris. We're joined today by Diane Ramirez, CEO and Chairman of Halstead, a leading residential real estate brokerage firm in the New York metropolitan area, to discuss how she's built one of the most successful real estate companies and innovative strategies she's implemented to bring Halstead to where it is today. Diane has been part of the Halstead team since it was founded in 1984, and she's overseen two of Halstead's major rebrands. She's helped grow the firm from three storefronts in Manhattan to its current size of nearly three dozen strategically located offices with 1,300 agents throughout Manhattan, Brooklyn, Queens, Riverdale, the Hamptons, Hudson Valley, New Jersey, and Fairfield County, Connecticut. Halstead recently announced its second major rebrand launch, introducing a new logo, use of color, positioning, and website. She's built an internal foundation of technology, marketing services, and support companies, which has led the firm to its new bold and contemporary look, while keeping the core values and strengths of the firm the same, a vision that she has had for Halstead since its launch. Now, let's welcome Diane to the call as we join our host, Tim Harris. So, Diane, it is, first of all, I... I Thank you for unmuting her, Mr. Show Producer. Diane, it is an oh. honor to have you on the podcast. I know we have a lot of your agents as personal coaching clients, um, and they're always, frankly, a joy to coach. <laughs> and the oh, environment you've created inside – well, you, you know many of them. I mean, maybe with the exception of Rob Johnson in Connecticut. That guy can be a bit of a oh, pain. Yes. I'm just kidding. Yes. No <laughs> way. I'm, he's, my fa- he's my favorite. But don't he's tell so, anyone well, else I, I told you that. Yo, trust me, no one's going to know except the 174,000 agents listening right now, especially when I, re- when I kind of reiterate what you say. He's probably one of my favorite coaching clients, too. Such a gentleman. But listen, yes. here's, here's the question I have for you. When, in, in a market that's so hyper-competitive for such incredibly talented agents like Rob, how is it that what – what do you do to attract them to you? Because you're in New York City, which is – that's the heart of your businesses, and that has got to be the single hardest place in the country to sell real estate, and in my opinion – and the single most competitive places for brokers to attract agents. So why do they come to you? What, what, are, the, what are the reasons that people obviously seek you out? Well, it's first of all, it's a joy to be here, and I've, I'm so delighted to um, be even listened to by all of your incredible um, people listening in. You know, it's, it's the basics. It's, um, it's what we started the firm um, wanting to be and that is a firm that focused on doing the right thing making sure our agents have what they need our vision in the beginning was to have it be a technology focused marketing focused company which back in 1984 no one even used those words and of course they mean different things today and then just to have an environment that we hope people will make their and and stay here and make their careers so that we've always been very open to what are their needs are we fulfilling the needs there's no 
Ivy Tower here. I know all of my agents. I adore them. I At the meetings, they know how much we care. We've built our leadership team with that premise is that their their needs are, are our number one needs. Our staff knows that as well. And so it's it worked in the in the 80s and it continues to work because it truly is the fabric of our company and and that equates to your culture and and people do resonate with our culture. They do absolutely. You know, the, it's interesting thing about your culture. I can't quite put my finger on the difference. Your culture is very similar to the culture at Elite Pacific out in Hawaii. Something about the nature of the salespeople, the realtors being treated like business owners, causes them causes them to act like business owners, opposed to sort of pandering to their egos and all the rest of it, treating them like professionals and helping them get better at their professional skills. They seem to resonate with that, and they seem to almost, you know, feel more at home and and want to leave. You know, they they stay with your brokerage for a long period of time. That's an interesting quality. Would you? Just a question. I'm just curious how you'd answer this. Would you say you're the brokerage is in the real estate business or the agent business? Your your brokerage business is your agents. So if you're not in the mm-hmm. agent business, then you how do you build brokerage? We have to give them what they need to broker. But it it really resonates with who you surround yourself with because I can I can have the best brokerage company in the world if I don't have my agents I don't have anything and I and I think that's what they feel and it's that feeling of partnership with them and and we're in this together and we're rolling up our sleeves right next to you so I hope that answers the question it really is you the agents are so important I hope other brokers listening understand what she just said and the importance of that. I mean, obviously, real estate brokerages are in the real estate business, but the mindset is that they're in the agent business and helping agents become successful because when you help agents become successful, your brokers become successful. It's like a mindset shift that you can you can feel that when you're when I'm talking and to one of so your agents. it's so subtle. Can, it's so subtle. It is. But it's, it, yes. It's but hard it's to real, put your finger huh? on, but it really is different. They feel supported. That's really, I think, what it is. They feel supported. They feel like they've got have someone that has their backs. I think is the best way to maybe right, encapsulate right. it. So you yeah, you've I been through so many market conditions. Yeah, you're, you can have it. <laughs> yes. You've been through so many market conditions since 1984. I mean, you've probably been through what seven or eight recessions, and the last one being oh, something yes. completely different. How do you? And they're and, all and different. Yeah, aren't they? Right? And so what we're seeing is a lot of people are predicting that next year, into next year, into 2020, 2021, you know, economists' predictions are about as reliable as unreliable can be. But let's assume that there's a recession on the horizon. How do you prepare your agents, especially the agents that work in a lot of high-end markets? How do you prepare them? What are the what are the types of business changes do you suggest that any agent, let alone high-end agents, take in preparation for a recession? Well, and I hate to look at it in preparation for a recession, but the reality is our prices have been rising for nine-plus years, especially here in New York, and that can't go on forever. So you have to look at reality, and reality is is, is for the agents to really understand that they need to let their sellers in particular know that they, no matter what they paid for their 
par- property or we always say apartment that the buyer does not care. So whether your market is rising or leveling or going down and and getting and in, going into a recession, be straight and forward and honest with the sellers. And if they're the sellers are not interested in a price that doesn't appeal to them, but wants what they think it should have, then encourage them not to even put it on the market. But be the advisor, be be the counsel, be the the one that really tells them the truth so that they can get the best price possible no matter what the conditions of the market are. And that's whether it's a flying market or a recession market. That is true, definitely. What are the qualities do you think that your best agents have? If you could sprinkle you know, this, these maybe three qualities that your best agents have on all of your agents in your brokerage, what would those three qualities be? I think the number one, and and sometimes people don't think top brokers are this way because they do, they are self-focused, which they should be. They're terrific, but they all have empathy. A great broker has to always put the people in the transaction ahead of the dollars that they may get out of it. And believe it or not, they make a lot of money, but most of them are not counting the dollars. They're they're counting the future business. They're counting the clients as long-term people in their lives. That resonates the care of I want you in the right place, whether it's for your yourself, your children, or an investment. And puts the client first. To me that's the most important thing. And then and then the you know, they're great listeners and and they have their you know, they have great skills to to walk through the transaction and, and not get sidelined by drama or an issue that might come up. Stay calm, cool and collected. And that's to me, those are the three things that I think pop out when I when I picture any one of my really great agents in my mind. I think that's really the ability to listen is and ask questions and listen and not react emotionally. Um, That's an incredible skill. I I 100% agree with you because most agents in most situations where there's just a tiny bit of stress, forget the fact that their job is to absorb the stress of the other people and to, uh, and they, they forget that. And then they interject their own ego their own stress, the next thing you know, they lose the deal. How do you, this is a crazy question. Now, here I am, the coach, asking you, but I bet you already know. I don't know. How do you teach somebody to basically be more calm and collected? How do you teach them to take that mental, emotional step back so they don't allow the thing to spin up, whatever the emotional issue is, that is the deal is you know, hanging on a, a string and the agent's ego steps in and ruins the deal? How do you uh, consult with your agents so that they are the ones that are keeping the deal together? Any any strategies? Well, I think the strategy is is it it cannot be just taught. It has to be something that is through the fiber of everything you're saying. So, you know, we're very hands-on directors and managers at this company. My door is always open. Agents are coming in all the time. My and my directors work with the agents constantly. So it's when you see that coming and bubbling up because some personalities 
it's it's a constant. They will never learn it, but but you just kind of say, okay, here it comes now. Take a deep breath, and and even let's talk it through you and I so that you can go back calm. And it's having that atmosphere of working with them. And eventually some of them really get it better than we get it. Uh, But some of them it's just a constant reinforcement of it's not about you. So let's get the you out of it before you start talking to the people that will make the deal happen or not. And having those um, very easy, open door, come in, I'm crazed, get me calm, um, and having that ability throughout the company that I think helps save a lot of deals. I mean, we call ourselves deal doctors all the time. I think it's one of the <laughs> most important things we do is um, <laughs> is kind of get them well. Everybody needs to have a touch of Dr. Phil, that's for sure, don't they? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. But that is, that, that's a good point. The only strategy, the strategy, listeners, that uh, works best for most people is if you give yourself an opportunity to take a step back. It's still the the advice you got from your grandma. Sleep on it. And it's interesting. Julie and I are working on our new book, and there we're uh, reading all these writings by these new sleep researchers. And one of the researchers was saying, "You know how you used to get this conventional advice: sleep on it, and then you'll have a better answer in the morning." Well, this guy actually researched that, and he showed that basically when you have some big problem to solve and you sleep on it, your subconscious mind while you're sleeping actually creates a solution that you wouldn't have come up with during your normal conscious mind because while you're asleep, your ego is not uh, clouding your ability to make a clear judgment. So by sleeping on it, you actually wake up in the morning with a solution you never would have had otherwise. So I thought that was really fascinating. But really taking that a step back. So. It is, isn't it? It's like all these things that like we should have been doing all the way along. You start when some guy with a white coat with a bunch of PhDs tells us to do it. All of a sudden, uh, you know, Grandma had, hey, turns out she knew what she was talking about. Right. Oh, God, so, she sure did. In New York City, what's, when somebody asks what's going on in the market, I know it's a very segmented market and different price points and different types of products and all that. But overall, what is – I know there's a lot of new rentals that were coming online in the city – what are the market conditions right now as far as like for the ultra luxury on a, just a snapshot if, of what you see going on in the market? Oh, in the luxury, it's um, there's activity, but the aspirational pricing is absolutely a thing of the past. And um, it's only when properties are priced accurately, and I don't care what price point it is, uh, that's the only time it's happening, but particularly in the luxury the luxury marketplace. I mean, we've, we've just had a couple of deals where we're the third agent. I mean, there's nothing like being the third and last agent where the owner wanted a price, the, sell, the agents tried to get it, and, and my agent smartly went in and said, you know, you're not going to get that. And and they ended up selling it. And the bottom line is the sellers are thrilled. Uh, but we are shifting in the New York market, particularly in the luxury, to a buyer's market. This has been happening um, over the last couple of years. And, um, you know, we've got rising inventory, which is um, – you know it's it's never a good thing but but if you're priced properly um it will get sold at any price point i don't care if it's 60 million or 2 million and it it's funny watching the belmont stakes um it i i equate it to my agents often is 
our market now is not just price it accurately. You have to sharpen that pencil so sharp that you are the one that comes out of the gate, out in the lead. The last place you want to be if you watch a horse race is in the middle of the pack. And that's what most agents try to get the price to is, oh, well, this is where the comps are. You don't want to be there. That's the middle of the pack. None of them win. It's the ones that sharpen the pencil and get out in front. And it's often only by a nose. But you've got to be out in front, not in the pack. And and that's what we right now are really encouraging our agents to advise sellers. Sharpen that pencil. And if, it, oh, if that's it's, such go, a good it's supposed to go... Yeah, it's, that was yeah, a great. It, I love it. That was awesome. I'm so going to steal that. Oh, thank you. That was so good. Oh, good. Yeah. Oh, well, good. that's a great. That's a great analogy. It's awesome. Those, so, listeners, I hope you're paying attention. What she just said, you can go back and listen to this podcast. It's on iTunes on timandjulieharris.com. Office managers, brokers. I hope you're writing that script down because she just said that so perfectly. You could see yourself watching the horse race, and you could see the pack of horses, and you can. So, as you were visualizing, as she was telling her story that that would be the same effect it would have when you're telling a seller. And I hope you were hearing what she was saying. Most agents basically take the easy, hit the easy button and price it in the middle, opposed to pricing. I, I, did you guys catch what else she said? Aspirational pricing. What a brilliant, classy way of saying a seller who wants to overprice. Such elegant ways of expressing the same thing. Guys, when it comes to a market where it's changing, where you're dealing with high-end sellers, what you're dealing with, what you're battling with is their egos. And if you try to, ha- if your ego decides to go to battle with their ego, you're not only not going to get the listing, you're going to get burned out and frustrated as to why you didn't get the listing. You need to learn to develop some class and some panache when dealing with upper-end sellers. Or by the way, this is true with any seller, but upper-end sellers in particular. So that is such a good, you know, but that's, that walks into a whole skills thing, right? I mean, agents who have only sold, I don't know what percent of your agents have only been in the business since like the last 10 years, but most agents listening, just statistically, have only been around post, you know, housing apocalypse, and right. they uh, so they never they've never Diane they've never sold in a market where the where they have to get price reductions they you know that's it that's where they come to us because they want to learn those skills so yeah. agents that has to be a huge psychological thing for a lot of agents who have only sold in a rising market having to tell sellers to lower the pricing um, how do you like when you're dealing with when you're counseling an agent to deal to deal with a seller with a big ego who's aspirationally priced, what are the what are the key things that you tell that agent to clue in on or focus in on in order to help that seller understand the importance of pricing it right to get it sold? First of all, what I really always ask them to do is give them the honest price of where it's going to sell. And even if you kind of just slide right through it, you must be the voice of the truth. And then as they want it being priced aspirationally and further up and the reasons why because of what they have in and what they did, then you can plan a strategy of, well, maybe there is a buyer at that. Now, I don't recommend you put it on a too high a price, but sometimes you have no choice. And if that's the case, then have the strategy of, all right, we agree this is the most incredible place I've ever walked into, but this is what the rest of the market's like. Now, nothing's as special as you, but this is really where the market is. So that 
when it doesn't get an offer, which most of the times it doesn't, you can go back to that conversation and say, you know what, we we agreed, You're, it was fabulous, but the market's speaking, and no one has your sophistication and, and your sensitivity to this, and we need a buyer. So now we got to go to where the market is, and it, you can get them to go along with your pricing because you didn't play into them from the beginning. If you go in saying, oh, yeah, yeah, this is worth $100 million, absolutely, but it's really not worth that and you never said it, how do you get a price reduction? Because they're going to say, you gave me that number. So I always say no matter how you do it, you've got to get the real number in there. And so, listeners, I'm going to drill down on a couple of things that she said, nuanced, very classy things that she said. And, of course, I'm less nuanced and classy, so I'll just cut – I'll just do it the normal podcast style. It's, it's comes to motiv- It comes down to motivation and time frame, but the problem you're going to have – and we're talking about mostly upper end, folks, guys, but this deals – well, this next bit deals mostly with upper end. When you're dealing with rich people, uh, maybe it's too brash of a term, but there you go. Generally speaking, they don't have real have-tos. They're going to have – the ability to keep the house as a rental, there's, they're not going to be in a position where they have to sell the house for financial reasons usually. Now, obviously, there's exceptions to that, but we saw during the last recession some of our top agents on both coasts, their you know, multimillion-dollar listings all became renters. rentals, and the sellers um, were happy as you know, pie as the houses became rentals. They had cash flow on them. And then um, when, the, when the market changed, the, those agents were able to keep those listings and, you know, resell them. In some cases, they stayed rentals. So just for what it's worth, guys, you're going to have to be able to have a very upper-end folks. You're going to have to really drill down as much as you can on the seller's motivation and time frame, because if you try to, to pressure them too much out of um, you know, the usual sort of tactics of, as, as far as financial loss, they're not going to react to that. You have to be almost treating this as a business discussion. Well, no, you have to treat it as a business discussion because chances are they earned the money to buy that luxury property, and so they're going to be willing to listen if you're willing, if you have the ability to present the, to them a business argument about positioning the house correctly on the, uh, on the market so that it correctly reflects the market's expectations. And there's another script, guys. Notice I did not say lower the price. So this is going to be the single biggest challenge, Diane. I think. Well, I'm curious if you agree. Pricing things correctly, pricing things to an adjusting market. As we enter into a recession, whenever that happens, 12 months, 24 months, whenever, whenever that happens, agents uh, who don't know how to price correctly, agents who don't know how to deal with the emotions and the egos of the sellers, they're going to, you know, they're going to be out of business. That's kind of shocking and scary. Um, so, pricing correctly, understanding sellers' motivation. Uh, is there anything else that comes to mind that to help agents? Uh, really price things correctly do you suggest that you they take sellers just practically speaking on tours of competing properties or anything like anything like that how, how drilled down do you suggest or uh, coach your agents to get with some of the sellers who are a little bit hard-headed about pricing well it, it sometimes it helps to to have them see other properties but i i have found they always think theirs is so far superior so it, it'll, it almost gives them an argument as to why no mine is better, so therefore I should get more money. So I, I have found unless it's it's a seller that's very motivated and is just trying to understand it, it really doesn't work. 
I I think I so agree with you. I think if you can stay with them as business people and you're in this together, that even if it takes years, you keep the relationship and it's not an ego. And again, you're not looking to, I'm not getting a commission on this unless they listen to me. And that's where you know, you lose your client because they know you're worried more about yourself than them. I think as long as you just keep as their confidant, as you're working with them, it's a changing market, let's work together, um, you'll keep that for however long you need to. And if you're lucky, you'll sell it. And if not, like you said, you'll get a rental and at least a client at the end of the day. Well, that's something Rob and I worked on in Greenwich, right? When he came across a seller that yeah. was resolute about their price and the pricing was aspirational and they didn't want to lower the price no matter what, even if the house was vacant and had, you know, just had been vacant for a long period of time, just to want to lower the price. And so listeners, this is a phenomenon that's true with any, I, I know when we put one of our properties for sale, which we do rarely, but when we do, we are terrible at pricing because all of a sudden, because it was our property, it's automatically worth more. Guys, that's just nothing other than seller ego. Because, and now what does that mean? Ego is used as, it's overused, maybe we overuse it, but here's the best way to understand it. It's, big, it's a personal item. People, even though it's a, a property, a house they're selling, it's a place they lived. It's a place they loved. It's a, pr- a place maybe where they've raised their children. It's a pr- Who knows what else has happened in that house that is near and dear to their hearts. So it's not just a house for most people. Even business people, even real drilled-down business people, spreadsheet types, they still have an emotional attachment to the property. That's where the overpricing really comes in. That's where all of a sudden they can't see it objectively, and you have to see it objectively. But you also really have to never forget what the seller's motivation is if they'll tell you. Again, upper-end sellers, their motivation isn't always very clear. They might have 10 houses. They might only live in that house for you know, two months of the year. Who knows? We have folks in, um, that we've coached in different markets where you know, they'll sell a house for $10 million and someone will be in it for you – know, Two weeks a year, that's it. Who knows? So when you're dealing with really upper-end folks, guys, you're dealing with a, a different, you know, very ultra-high net worth types, their motivations are never going to be that clear. But the elements of what we're talking about, about with how you get a property sold in a changing market, that is clear. It's always the same process. What's going on with international buyers? I know international buyers were a big part of your market for a long time. Where are, Have you seen a – what kind of – well, you tell me, drop-off increase, and what countries are they coming from primarily now? There, uh, it, first of all, it's, most people think a good part, especially in New York City itself, is the foreign market, and it's not. If it's at the height, it was 20% of our buyers were foreigners. But And they change from time to time. The Chinese are still buying, but it's always at a lower level. Uh, Europeans are starting to come back. Um, South Americans were 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 away, but but if you've got enough money, they're um, they're there. So it's always a spattering. It's unlike it was in the early uh, early to mid two thousands, where you'd have you know a whole bunch of Irish coming or a whole you know it was almost like business coaches got them together and said, oh, quickly buy some investment properties. It's really now the one-off that's buying it, and it's not necessarily for an investment. They all hope it will be a good investment, but I'm seeing most of the buying is for personal use, for possibly the future in, in the case of the Chinese or 
or someone wanting their third or fourth or tenth tenth property and and you, why why not have one in New York? Uh, but it's the the investor clusters that we we saw you know 15 years ago. That's you know that's gone. So they come from all over. So the condo market, I um, have the honor of coaching somebody who does a lot of uh, marketing for the, some of the bigger developers around the country. Um, yeah. They're like, you know, you, you know what I'm talking about. And so they um, are telling me that in New York in particular, a lot of the developments that were originally built to be resale um, are turning into apartments. What effect is that having and what price point are you seeing that mostly if, where, where's the where's the biggest hurt in terms of price point with the with that kind of market change? So you're saying they they wanted to sell them again, but but now they're no, they didn't. They I'm, turned I'm, them into rentals. Yeah, they turned them into rentals. Yes, they turned them into rentals, right? Because they, right. you know, you you buy you buy early on in a development, and you think you can turn it into an investment and and trade it, and and the prices have not elevated, and if not, they're holding. So if they were not using it sufficiently, they cannot they cannot get their money out. I mean, some people are losing money in, in, in these big Uber luxury buildings, so they'll rent them, and they'll they'll get incredible prices. Even though the rental market isn't that strong, if it's special enough, you you usually can find a, a person that wants it. But you can't flip it. This so, is where the market's gone for, right, that's, for flipping and making. Right, that's money. where it's changed. Yeah, it's it's yes, a it's a, it's a buy and hold situation which changed. Right, that's changed all over yeah. the country too. So, yeah. so here's the thing, listeners. New York City is perhaps the number one market to watch in the entire world, let alone the nation, to know what's coming your way. Um, I saw this happen during the three previous recessions, but truthfully, Julie and I were only really focused in the last two because that's when we were coaching. And I saw that New York City's what happened in New York City was usually going to happen in the rest of the country. It was sometimes years, depending on where you were in the country. But so New York City and virtually all price points, I assume it's $2.5 million down. That's still pretty popular, right? Those houses sell like hotcakes or no? Uh, it, again, it's all only if it's value-priced. Because Got it. that market, uh, the investors is not jumping in anymore because our rental market mm-hmm. is a little slow. So we've lost a little segment of our market, which always impacts it. So uh, I don't think anything's jumping off unless it's value-priced. So, listeners, what you just heard is from perhaps the number one broker in the country tell you exactly what's happening in the number one market in the country, and she deals with some of the top agents in the country. Wherever you are in the country, (laughs) that's what's coming your way. You have to be prepared for it. She gave you some brilliant scripts. So some of you guys are going to, you know, you're going to say, oh, my gosh, this wasn't very motivational. Well, it should have been because here's a little truism for you. The greatest fortunes, not just in real estate, but in the history of history, have always been made during the greatest times of change. So if you know change is coming, and it always is, but if you know change is coming to real estate, and it definitely is, it behooves you to become a master at pricing, at really giving a drilled down analysis of the market, um, and also being able to adjust prices because in a market like this, guys, where you can clean up our expired listings and folks that are frustrated with you know their current situation with their current agent because they're not getting showings, when you have sellers that are a little bit less or they're not so confident about their aspirational pricing, thank you for that, ma'am, 
um, then you're going to get sellers that are uh, going to be looking for people that are professionals. That means all the agents out there that were listing and selling off their personalities who didn't have skills. So in the past, it, real estate's a relationships business. Everyone says that, and it's true. But in a market like this, in a market that it's becoming, it's a relationships, a relationship meets skills business. The relationships are relatively easy to get. That's fun. The skills, that takes some work and that takes some skill. I hope you heard what she said. I hope you understood that this gal has been around since 1984, and she's seen it all as far as the major growth in a major market. And please listen to what she said. And don't be scared. Don't be fearful. Know that, again, the greatest fortunes in the history of history have always made during the greatest times of change. And in some form, that's going to be taking place. So don't just sit back, rest on your laurels, and think that the market's going to continue to be like it's been. Here you're hearing from New York City. Here you're hearing from, again, one of the number one markets in the world as far as pricing and as far as market uh, movement. So if you're in Columbus, Ohio, where Julie and I sold real estate, or if you're in you know, Austin, Texas, or if you're in one of these markets that's still on fire, it's coming your way. So get ready. Be ahead of the curve. Be smart, guys. This is an opportunity for you. Diana, anything else you'd like to say to the listeners as we round the Ben on today's podcast? I, I loved having you on the podcast today. You have oh, an you. unbelievable, I, I so classy approach. Yeah, that, that was wonderful. Anything else you'd like to say to all the folks out there that are listening? Nothing other than what you, you just to reiterate. Um, don't be afraid of it. Love it. This is a passion-building business. Uh, it's it's what I feel every day. And um, and good, bad, or indifferent, uh, there's no better business to be in. So embrace it and be the best you can be. I'm so with you. Yeah, it's actually, in, in my humble opinion, it's better to be in a market that's in transition than in, in a hot seller's market. Because in a hot seller's market, the sellers are going to always basically make unusual demands on you. In a market that's in transition, skilled agents are in the driver's seat. And that's the market we're headed into. And all of you, you have to be excited about that. If you're not, it's just because maybe intuitively, you know, you can need to get your skills spun up. And guess what? It's not that difficult, guys. Just focus. And, uh, hey, if you're in New York City and you're looking for a brokerage change and you're looking for a, or if you're looking to maybe get your license, if Diane will consider you as a new agent, it doesn't matter. If you're anywhere in any of her markets and she's got offices, well, I mean, you have obviously New York City, Greenwich, Connecticut. Where are the other places you have offices? Uh, we're in New Jersey and uh, the Hamptons and four of the five boroughs here in Manhattan, here in New York. You, you guys owe it to I'm yourselves to get in direct do you mind? Do you want to? Ha- who do they contact if they're interested in joining your, joining Halstead? Do they oh, contact you directly? Oh, give me a call. I pick up my phone. I'd love to hear from anyone. <laughs> What's your phone Absolutely. number? Get ready for calls. <laughs> okay, it's two one two three eight one three two zero three. I look there you forward. Go. So, Diane, thank you very much for being my co-host today. Listeners, if you're in her market, you have at least have to have a conversation with her. I know you're feeling some of the. You know the stresses of a changing market, and if you're not in a situation that's based, if they're, if your brokerage or your office manager is just doing the constant rah-rah and motivational stuff, and they're not leveling with you, treating you like a professional, treating you like somebody who it can weather whatever storm clouds are on the horizon, whatever you know sunny days are on the horizon, you need to approach Diane and ask her to maybe consider you as an agent in her brokerage. So, Diana, thank you very much for being my co-host, and everyone else have a fantastic day, and we'll talk to you on the show tomorrow. Thanks, Dan. Great. Thank you. 
This program has been a presentation by Tim and Julie Harris, Real Estate Coaching. For more information on our real estate coaching and training programs, visit our website at timandjulieharris.com. Remember to tune in weekdays at noon for upcoming shows. And until next time, thank you for listening to Real Estate Coaching Radio with Tim and Julie Harris. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.